Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 160, The Fall of a Royal Servant. Ooh, and France... Picture the scene, ladies and gents. It's a spring day on the south coast of England, which probably means it's cold and rainy. We're just outside the town of Dover. We're on the beach, and it's 1450. You're walking along the beach. Behind you are the famous white cliffs. The sound of seagulls. Then ahead of you, you see a pole. And by the pole, a lump. And as you get closer, you can see there's something on top of the pole, and as you get closer still, you can see what it is. Gasp in horror, ladies and gentlemen, you gasp in horror. It is the grinning, partially decomposed head of a man, crudely stuck on the top of a pole. As you get closer still, assuming you haven't legged it by this point, you come on a headless body laying by its side. Despite the fact that it lacks a head, it's clearly the body of a man who'd enjoyed the finer things in life, dressed in the richest of clothes. As you disappear, screaming, you might well be wondering who this unfortunate man was, how his body came to mislay its head in such an unfortunate manner. And we will all find out why in this week's episode. So, let's go back five years to 1445. When we left the last episode, we were talking about Suffolk and the strategy to hold on to France. You might recall that England was, broadly speaking, skint and indeed was facing several hundred thousands of pounds of minus money. And so Suffolk and the king, they wanted peace. They may well have wanted peace for different reasons. Henry was a man of peace. He wanted a healed Christendom, and he was stupid enough to believe Charles when Charles said he loved his fellow king as a brother. Charles did no such thing. Charles thought Henry was a loser to be tricked, deceived and robbed. Suffolk was now in a commanding position at court. Bit by bit, he'd accumulated power, influence and control into his hands, and he was now without doubt the king's chief minister, as it were, though such a formal role did not exist. You can read Suffolk's motivation more or less sympathetically at this point. On the one hand, you can say he's a power-mad, ambitious schemer out to exploit the king's feeble character. 
Or you can say that he did what somebody had to do. He had to fill the power vacuum that had to be filled. The king wasn't doing his job. The medieval state needed a king to function, so somebody had to do his job for him. And Suffolk was that man. And the answer is probably a bit of both. There's no doubt he enjoyed his power and made hay while the sun shone in terms of hoovering up a nice bunch of patronage. But I think we also have to accept that at least part of Suffolk's motivation was to do a job that had to be done and do it as well as he could. Anyway, everyone was very excited about the prospects that Margaret and Henry's marriage seemed to promise. And so in April 1445, everyone was busy preparing for the big event and for a procession through London as Margaret approached the shores of England. But when the 14-year-old lass reached Southampton, on the south coast on the 9th of April, she was ill. She'd been ill all the way through France too, and so everything was delayed. Henry was impatient to know more about his new queen, and so a chivalric plan was hatched, whereby he'd pretend to be a squire, delivering a letter from Henry to Margaret. Margaret's entourage was in on the wheeze, and so there we are. Rather gormless-looking squire arrived at the young queen's lodgings with a letter from her husband that she's never met. Barely sparing a thought for the poor squire, she opens the letter and devours and analyses its contents with her ladies. She sees the gormless young squire still hanging around, so she sends him off, possibly with a flea in his ear. Slightly awkward. Eventually, the ladies-in-waiting rather slyly ask what she thought of the young squire. History doesn't record the actual words, just the complete lack of interest. Potentially, maybe it was, huh, dunno, looks a bit gormless to me. Anyway, the ladies fessed up. The Queen was, of course, mortified. Now, I have to say, folks, if you want my advice in romantic affairs, and I have to say that if you do, you are in the direst of trouble, if there are any of you planning such a romantic approach, I seriously could not recommend it. I mean, a bit like England playing San Marino, it just can't end well. On the one hand, the Queen had showed no interest whatsoever, which probably hurt Henry's feelings. On the other hand, if the young Queen had started dribbling and throwing herself on some anonymous young squire's neck, how good would that have looked? You take my point, I hope. What did they think was going to happen? Certainly, Henry VIII would try the same tactic with Anne of Cleves, and look how that ended up. Anyway, the Queen eventually recovered her war and her health, and the happy young couple were married at Titchfield Abbey by the Bishop of Salisbury, and then proceeded on to London, where everyone had a party. The whole place was decked out with streamers and decorations. Folks were hanging from the rooftops to see the young Queen with her rather meagre entourage. The air was full of hope and optimism. The young queen would bring with her connections and would bring with her peace. And for Henry and Margaret, the marriage seems to have been an instant success, and their relationship close and tender. This was despite the fact that Henry appears to have developed a very high sensitivity to any kind of nudity. So let us move briefly into a bit of a digression, if you'll forgive me. One of the folks who left us intimate details about Henry was a chap called John Blackman, the king's physician. It gives us an idea of the king's character, though beware, Blackman's ambition was to have Henry canonised. So, a no-holds-barred expose for the Sunday papers this is not. However, here's one of the things he wrote. Hence it happened once that at Christmas time a certain great lord brought before him a dance or show of young ladies with bared bosoms, who were to dance in that guise before the king, perhaps to prove him, or to entice his youthful mind. But the king was not blind to it, nor unaware of the devilish wile 
and spurned the delusion, and very angrily averted his eyes, turned his back on them, and went out of the chamber, saying, Fie, fie, for shame! Forsooth, ye be to blame! Anyway, the main point is that despite Henry's squeamishness, Henry and Margaret got on. Henry referred to Margaret as our most dear and most entirely beloved wife. And there's a nice story of a New Year's celebration where the young couple spend the entire morning in bed while folk bring them prezzies. Ah, lovely. However, the peace was the big thing on everyone's political minds and the peace process was to drive all politics for the next five years. The next people to arrive were the negotiators from the King of France. Suffolk was confident that his plan was coming together. Oh yes, at Tours, Charles hadn't made the commitments to peace that Suffolk had been hoping for. He would admit that, but he was confident that now we'd see some action. The English king would be confirmed as holding Normandy in full sovereignty, and even if that meant having to give up the claim to the throne of France, hey, that was probably a dead letter anyway, since we are having our backsides kicked. So imagine Suffolk's horror when it began to dawn on him that in fact the French had no additional ideas or concessions that they had any intention of offering. Essentially, it was get out of Normandy, and if you do that, you can have Gascony and Calais in fief from the King of France. All the rest, that comes back to Charles. The arrival of Margaret seems to have had no positive impact whatsoever. And in fact, Charles's negotiators pushing for Suffolk and Henry to nail down that deal they'd mentioned, you know, the one about conceding Maine for absolutely nought in the interests of peace. To Suffolk's horror, he realised that he had been comprehensively outmanoeuvred. What Charles had done is decouple the marriage, the concession of Maine, and the idea of peace. Now, it should have been okay. Only an idiot would actually agree to concede a major county with no tangible gain whatsoever. Interestingly, that's exactly what we appear to be dealing with, an idiot. Henry fell for Charles's effusively friendly letters. At his side, his beloved new wife used what influence she did have at this early stage on behalf of the French. She urged Henry to make a commitment immediately to give Maine away. It's interesting. I don't think anyone's suggesting that Margaret should be held to blame for this remarkably inept piece of diplomacy. And given Margaret's later resolution and determination, it's slightly surprising that she was so keen for her husband to roll over. But roll over is exactly what Henry did. In December 1445, with his beloved wife's pleadings in his ears, he wrote a personal letter to Charles, assuring him that by April 1446 he would hand over all of Maine, just on the off chance this would make the French feel better about the English. Let's be careful also. Although it's easy to blame it all on the less-than-Einstein-like intelligence of Henry, it's more than likely that Suffolk was fully behind the plan and would have had the influence with the king to nix the idea if he'd so desired. But the fact was that the deal was an incendiary piece of nonsense which would be vilified by everyone with any more than two brain cells to rub together and that was effectively signalled by the fact that the whole thing was kept as secret as possible because it was political dynamite. Everyone knew that Gloucester, discredited though he might be at the moment, would have a complete hissy fit, and could well ride back into power on a wave of outrage and incredulity. And then there was the increasingly arrogant and self-important Richard, Duke of York, Lieutenant Governor of France. He knew nothing of this. This would have been done on his watch. He could well see it as a direct affront to his honour. 
No, if this news got out at the wrong time in the wrong way, Suffolk would be out of Westminster so quickly his feet wouldn't touch the ground. Suffolk liked it at Westminster. Suffolk liked being at the right hand of the king, so if someone had to go, it wasn't going to be Suffolk. Richard of York therefore found himself on the wrong end of an inquiry launched by Adam Molens into his financial handling of Normandy. The story of Richard of York's role in all of this is more than a little murky. One version goes that York was appalled and that Suffolk therefore launched a political attack to discredit him and shipped him off to Ireland to get him out of the way. The other goes that Richard actually already knew about the main conversations was prepared at very least to sit on his hands and accepted a move to Ireland as perfectly logical given the extent of his own lands there. It's difficult to know, but the bare facts are that York was replaced as Lieutenant Governor of France by Edmund Beaufort, now Duke of Somerset, after the suicide of his brother. And that when York left for Ireland in 1449, he was indeed out of the way in a time of deep pain for the government. But Gloucester was still the major danger, and he was very public about his fury at this weak-kneed, namby-pamby, lily-livered policy. Gloucester had become almost completely powerless, it has to be said. Suffolk had been able to publicly denigrate and minimise him. On one horrible occasion, Suffolk had humiliated Gloucester in front of the king, assuring French ambassadors that Gloucester's opinions counted for nothing. But nonetheless, he could be a danger. And so in 1447, Suffolk acted. A parliament was called at Bury St Edmunds, deep in Suffolk's very own hood. Gloucester was summoned to appear before the parliament. Gloucester was not a complete blithering idiot. He knew his views were unpopular. The location of parliament was a bit odd. So he took his time. The parliament had been going for ten days before he arrived in Bury, and he'd brought a lot of friends with him in the form of a huge retinue of Welshmen, armed to the teeth. When he arrived, he may have picked up there were rumours circulating, rumours that there was a plot out there to kill the king. He was in danger, and when he arrived, he headed straight to see his nephew, the king, to make sure he was the first to put his case and that he was okay. But Suffolk's men stopped him in town and instructed him to go to his lodging at St Saviour's Hospital. This wasn't good. Gloucester settled down for an uneasy supper, but his worst fears were to be realised. That very night, a group of peers of the realm appeared at his door and roughly informed Gloucester that he was arrested. His head servants were arrested, his minor servants told to make themselves scarce. The mighty and illustrious Gloucester of the Blood Royal was imprisoned. Whether it was the shame or the fury or the red-hot poker up the dark side, we don't know. But on the 20th, Gloucester was found in a coma, and so it probably was natural causes, and probably a stroke. To Suffolk's relief, and probably Gloucester's actually, he didn't pull through, and he died on the 23rd of February 1447, and an era had definitively passed. It was not to be long before another passed. Gloucester, however, was really the least of Suffolk's problems because his room for manoeuvre just got smaller and smaller. It was becoming clear that his regime was financially bankrupt. The crown now owed a stonking 372,000 quid. The king's profligacy had reduced the annual income to two-bit 5,000 quid a year. 5,000 quid a year. Running the royal household alone was 14,000 quid a year. The standard garrisons added a further 7,000 a year. 
Richard of York's arrears on his job in France was £26,000. Accountants were scurrying round the halls of Westminster looking furtive and hoping not to meet a reporter from the Daily Mail out to write an expose, especially as the Treasury calmly tried to deal with the whole problem by just issuing tally sticks to the sum of 56,000 quid in that year. Remember tally sticks? This was the invention in the time of Henry I from the Exchequer. You issue a stick, cut in half and worth a stated amount, which the payee could then bring in and redeem by bringing in his half. Well, of that 56,000 quid, 30,000 could not be redeemed because there was no money to pay it. Although Bishop Lumley arrived as the new treasurer and implemented strict reforms and controls, the word on the street was that the treasury only had 500 quid in it. And you could get more than that for the rough end of a pineapple. So although Suffolk was probably aware that he should have been preparing for war, the concept of an aggressive campaign was just quite beyond England's financial means. He had to have peace. Giving Maine away for Nout was clearly a rubbish idea, but as the promised date passed and Charles's chasing letters moved from polite to nasty to solicitor, Suffolk began to realise that nasty as it was, giving up Maine was his only play. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Just to add to the general state of panic and despair, 1447 onwards seems to have been accompanied by a wave of violence and disorder. The gentry and knights of the Shire almost inevitably used parliaments for a bit of honest mewling and puking, but this time around they had a point. And the disorder wasn't the problem of outlaws and so on, although no doubt that was all still there. It was visited on local society by the very people who should have been protecting local society. Royal and baronial officials and the magnates. As the patronage flowed, the court at Westminster had become the centre of the political universe. Confident that their lord would protect them through their influence at court, baronial and royal officials mercilessly exploited and abused their position of authority to make a quick and substantial buck. Plus, the political water boiled with the piranhas that were the magnates around the rich pickings that the king threw out. In fact, having been irresponsibly generous, Henry moved smoothly through the gears, through wildly profligate into complete pottiness. And of course... The piranhas were now savaging two new massive dead bodies thrown into their pool, the lands of Gloucester and the lands of the Earl of Warwick. The second one is worth unpicking just a little bit. So Richard Beecham, Earl of Warwick, had been the great general of Henry V's campaigns and Henry VI's tutor, and laden with honours thereby. As he predicted, slightly grumpily, he'd died in France in 1439 and his son Henry Beecham had succeeded. Now, Henry had been Henry VI's childhood companion, and by golly, Henry had loaded even more honour on the Beechams as a result. Now he was Duke of Warwick rather than just simply Earl, given precedence over every other Duke apart from the Duke of Norfolk. Unfortunately, Henry Beecham had then died. His two-year-old daughter Anne had been heir, and golly, you can imagine the excitement that went on there to get the wardship of such a glittering heiress. But sadly, little Anne died. 
Now, I could go through a few thousand hours of the twos and fro's of the struggle to gain the estate, but seriously, that would make Ditchwater look like a funfair. So, suffice it to say that the winner of the Beecham inheritance was a chap called Richard Neville. Richard Neville, ladies and gentlemen, son of the Earl of Salisbury. Essentially, folks, the actors for the stage of the Wars of the Roses are slowly assembling. Richard Neville was the 16th Earl of Warwick and in 1447 he was a young man of 19. We won't hear much of him for the next three years or so because his time is occupied in fighting with the likes of Thomas Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, for his new inheritance. But if I tell you that Richard Neville will be known to history as the Kingmaker, you'll probably guess that he'll be back. So, the point about all these inheritances are that they come against the backdrop of a period of extraordinary tetchiness between the great magnate families. There's a complete breakdown of restraint between them that leads to a series of local conflicts between the followers of different magnates. For example, between the tenants of the Dukes of Buckingham and the tenants of the Duke of York. Between the tenants of the Dukes of Suffolk and York, between Cromwell and Tailboys, Stafford and Harcourt. I could go on. And while the magnates squabbled, their attention was anywhere but on defending France. And the merchants, gentry and knights in the commons were disinclined to vote Taxation for a bunch of lords who turned their local societies into a feeding frenzy of violence, and for a king who couldn't control a flower-arranging contest in a nunnery. And so despite the absolutely desperate financial and military situation in 1448, the most they would vote was half a fifteenth. That's it, that's your lot, Gov. So while I would love to be as unsympathetic towards Suffolk, the man who along with Henry, essentially loses the Hundred Years' War, I can see that he has a few challenges. And all of this meant that, hate it or loathe it, Suffolk just had to get that peace. And so, he went ahead with the handover of all of Maine for absolutely no commitment from France for a permanent peace. All that blood spent to win it. The handover had to be completed by Suffolk's own men, who travelled there for the express purpose to force local captains to go through with it, and in the face of an army of 6,000 led by the impatient Charles. For those local captains and the people of England, it was a shameful betrayal. Suffolk, however, made poor use even of this enormous and dubious sacrifice. Let's not kid ourselves. Charles didn't give a tinker's curse about the truce that the handover of Maine had bought. Once he'd secured Maine, the only challenge was to find a convenient excuse to restart the war. Where Suffolk really comes unstuck is what happens next in Brittany. Once again, you have to admit that Suffolk has some tough cards to play, but sadly every time he played them, the results sucked. Brittany continued to be an essential part of the balance of power. Duke Francis was inclined towards France, but his younger brother Gilles was again a childhood companion of Henry and inclined towards England. Brittany, as ever, had to tread a clever, difficult line between England and France to survive and maintain a degree of independence. And into this delicate situation, Charles lobbed a grenade, persuading Duke Francis of Brittany to arrest his brother Gilles. Somerset, Lieutenant Governor of France, of course, and Suffolk, hatched a mad scheme to force Duke Francis to free Gilles by attacking and capturing a Breton town, Fougere. Talbot carried this out with his normal efficiency, 
but the result was nothing more than an active Breton-French alliance against England and an excuse for Charles to declare the truce broken and the war to be resumed on behalf of his vassal, the Duke of Brittany. Seriously, Suffolk, what were you thinking? In 1448, Somerset, the new lieutenant governor, found the garrisons in Normandy cut to 2,100 from their normal complement of 3,500. The money needed to maintain an effective defence force simply wasn't there. In February 1449, Somerset sent his personal envoys to make the situation quite clear to Parliament in England. Charles was preparing for war with a large army. The English defences were rubbish and lacked artillery. If war came, it would be lost. On both sides of the Channel, an air of defeatism reigned with no effective response to put things right. And in May 1449, three French armies duly attacked into Normandy. There was little coordination between the three. An organised defence could have taken each one out piecemeal, but there was no organised defence. With no men, no money, mounting an effective defence was something of a challenge for Somerset. Nonetheless, he made a surprisingly poor fist even of that. Pont de l'Arche fell to a French ruse. The Lancastrians ran away from Pont l'Evêque. Basically, the citizens of the towns fell over themselves to be first to get to the gates and open them for the French armies and made the position untenable for any English garrisons. The invasion was turning out to be pretty much bloodless. And meanwhile, the Bretons were advancing from the west, taking Avranches and Coutances with nary a whimper. By the way, and particularly any French folk out there, you have probably noticed that we appear to be dealing with the fall of English Normandy in less time than it takes to order a pint of real ale or pull on a pair of open-toed sandals over a pair of Marks and Sparks socks. You're probably wondering, how can it be that we spend three entire episodes on one battle, i.e. Agincourt, and somehow manage to dismiss an entire campaign of French glory in a couple of paragraphs? Could I just say that this is a good question? There is no answer. But I should point out that I have never promised to be even-handed. Also to point out that presumably one of the things your parents did was to teach you that life can be fun, but is not designed to be fair. So, sorry. But look, for me, this is like taking off a plaster. Quick, decisive rip to minimise the pain. Anyway, in the end, maybe it didn't matter that the French army was cutting through Normandy as a knife through butter, because the mighty city of Rouen still remained, a city that had withstood Henry V for seven months. And the Lieutenant-General of France, the Duke of Somerset, was there. He would surely hold out while reinforcements were gathered, fight to save his honour and that of his country. Well, not a bit of it. In fact, Somerset stitched up a deal within a day of Charles's arrival, paying out 50,000 écus and surrendering a pile of fortresses, including Harfleur, mind you, to save his own hide and get a safe conduct back to England. The collapse of Normandy was bad. Somerset's deal and surrender of Rouen was shameful. The final blow came at Formigny. As the English retreated up the Cotentin Peninsula in 1450 towards Cherbourg, at last some reinforcements arrived and at the village of Formigny the final battle took place. Actually, it started pretty well. The English force, traditional two-thirds archers, captured the French guns. But a Breton force arrived late in their rear, the English had to manoeuvre and were heavily defeated. 
It's slightly ironic that it was indeed the Bretons that drove the final nail into the English coffin. You can hardly blame them, given the disgrace of Fougere, but without the English to play off against the French, the Bretons would lose their independence by 1532 and the act of union with France. By the 12th of August 1450, the English were gone from Normandy. Even the French were slightly surprised at the speed and completeness of it, but of course, full of pride and delight. As the chronicler Jean Cartier wrote, Never had so great a country been conquered in so short a space of time. With small loss to the populace and the soldiery, and with so little killing of people or destruction and damage to the countryside. Except he said it in a French accent, obviously. Essentially, the English had beaten themselves before the invasion started. The Normans no longer had any stake in English rule, and the populace no sympathy with a regime that did not govern them well. Lack of resources, lack of leadership, meant that when the first domino fell, the others were quickly on the way. Cheapside is a common name in English cities. It essentially means a market, from the Old English cheapen to buy. The funny thing about walking around the City of London these days is that, of course, 90% of the old city is gone, replaced by glass and steel. But much of the basic road layout remains to give you a hint of what it might have been like. And in Cheapside, you can see the outline of the broad marketplace still. Well, through 1449 and 1450, a sorry stream of refugees wound their pitiful way through Cheapside, carrying all they could save on carts and on their backs. 400 years of history was at an end with Normandy. The search for someone to blame began immediately, of course. The popular songs didn't hesitate to name even the king. So poor a king was never seen, went a popular song. The streets and pubs were full of fury and outrage. The Bishop of Chichester, Adam Molens, was the first to suffer. He was the guy who'd handed over Maine to the French, a close associate of Suffolk. He chose 1450 to go on pilgrimage, which actually seems like a pretty sound decision. But unfortunately for him, he made it no further than Portsmouth where he was recognised and murdered by a military captain whose sense of gruntlement had completely deserted him. Suffolk, of course, knew exactly what was coming. As far as he was concerned, he was completely innocent. OK, pretty much everything he'd done had been a disaster, dogged by bad luck or just simple incompetence, but he'd kept everyone in the know, and they'd all been joint decisions. And he had a point. The commons had given no money, the king had pushed Suffolk to make peace at any price, the queen had done the same, the magnates had spent their time trying to steal somebody else's clothing. But in fact, since 1447, Suffolk and his court buddies had increasingly stood alone, divorced from the country, and increasingly looking like a self-interested, self-serving clique. Now, if they'd been a competent and successful self-interested and self-serving clique, that would have been fine. Unfortunately, They'd turned out to be a rubbish, self-interested and self-serving clique, and that was a bad combination. Certainly the Commons had no sympathy whatsoever. Under Suffolk's rule, they'd not just seen Henry V's legacy destroyed, they'd seen the peace and security of their own homelands ripped aside. They were going for the jugular. In January 1451, Suffolk went on the attack in Parliament. The Poole family, he said, had served with honour. They had shed blood for their country. He was a loyal servant the Commons were unimpressed, and they went for impeachment. He was accused of having invited the French to invade England, of passing secrets to the French, of tricking 
the king into giving him land and titles, and with a little bit of illegal sex to leaven the bread. He lay in bed with a nun, whom he took out of her holy orders and defiled. As a rule, a bit of nun defiling always helps in medieval court cases, I find. For Henry, all this was complete agony, of course, a situation he was totally ill-equipped to deal with. He summoned all the lords to his private chamber. Suffolk threw himself on Henry's mercy. And actually Henry found what he thought was a reasonable way out. He refused to find Suffolk guilty of treason, but he banished him for five years. For the lords specifically, this was very acceptable. Frankly, they had been involved all the way through and were pretty sympathetic to Suffolk. Or at least, you can't have the great and the good being humiliated by those oiks in the commons. On the 19th of March, then, in the dead of night, Suffolk was removed to his manor of East Thorpe in Suffolk. When they found out that he'd gone, the commons reacted with fury. London reacted with riots. They wanted, and they expected, blood. But on the 30th of April, it looked as though Suffolk would get away at least with his life. In a small fleet of two ships and a pinnace, he headed for Calais. But then in the channel, he was intercepted by a privateer, the Nicholas of the Tower. He was forced aboard the Nicholas and greeted with, Welcome, traitor, as he climbed aboard, which is not encouraging. Within 24 hours, the crew had made a decision. Since the king had failed to impose a proper judgment, they'd do the job. Suffolk was subjected to a show trial and, wow, guess what, found guilty. He was removed to a smaller boat with a chaplain and there, a sailor from Bosham, hacked off Suffolk's head. And a few days later, his body was found on the beach outside Dover with his head on a pole. And now we have another treat for you. Kevin is joining us again for another word of the week. So, over to you, Kevin. Thanks, David. This episode's word is the word danger. So beware as we explore the history of a word fraught with peril. Maybe it's not surprising that it came to England with the Normans after 1066. But the original sense of the word was slightly different from the modern sense of the word, as something threatening or unsafe. That modern sense finally evolved in the 1400s. So let's look a little closer at that history. The history of the word begins at home, literally at home, with the original Indo-European word domo, which gave us words like domicile and domestic and domain. That Indo-European root word domo spread with migrating tribes into Western Europe. Some of those tribes settled in Italy and gave rise to Latin. And Latin gave us the word domus, still meaning home. Over time, Domus evolved into dominium, which was a broader term which could refer to any type of property or estate. And we still have that word as dominion. But that Latin word eventually evolved into the French word domain. The master of the domain was the dominus, another Latin word from the same root. So the dominus was literally the master of his own domain. In medieval culture, that meant that the Dominus controlled his domain, and that produced another word, dominate. Dominate was what the Dominus did to his domain. We also get a similar sense in a Greek word which derives from the same root, the word despot. In some regional Latin dialects, that power of the Dominus, or Lord, 
was called the dominarium. And now we can start to see the connection to the word danger. In fact, that power, or dominarium, became danger in early French. And danger passed into English after the Norman Conquest in 1066. Even in early Middle English, the word still referred to the power of a lord or master over his estate or domain. But if you were one of the peasants or serfs who worked on that estate, that power or danger was a constant threat. You were often subject to the control and the whims of the local lord. And it was in that sense that that power or danger became associated with risk or peril. And by the 1400s, that word gave us the modern sense of the word danger. By the way, the word danger ultimately pushed aside the native Old English word for danger, which was plit. But that Old English word still survives in modern English as the word plight. So that's the history of danger, from the comfort and safety of home to the danger of a dominating despot. Back to you, David. Thank you, Kevin. And that brings us to a bit of a mini hiatus. Holiday season, a three-week break for me. Hurrah! I shall be returning on the 12th of September, and before you can say knife, we will be talking about the Wars of the Roses, and watch as England tears itself to pieces rather than the French. Meanwhile, a few donators to thank. William, Simon and Marilyn, thank you. And that, for a while, is that. Have fun, everyone, and good luck. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 